0: what is up team welcome back to the show today i am sharing a and a episode i did with my good friend jeff Hain. now on this episode pretty usually dug into some solid questions um, we dug into calorie cycling for fat loss and just our thoughts on how effective that really is how much fiber you should aim for in a building phase versus a cutting phase how to improve your hip range of motion in a squat um, what to do if you're losing inches but not weight um, thoughts on testosterone and testosterone replacement therapy. How long should a training phase or a muscle cycle last? And a lot more questions here. So per usual, again, this was a great episode. Um, I hope you enjoy hey guys, it. Let's welcome right to another
1: episode of the mind muscle connection podcast. And today I have Jeremiah bear back on. He was the first guest of the podcast, so it's always special to have him on. And then obviously my coach too. So, uh, appreciate you coming back on, man.
0: What's up, dude? I'm glad I have that special place in your heart. It is always a pleasure being here. <laughs> the other day, when
1: I had Brandon on, he uh,
0: like we were we were
1: talking about you off air for a second, all bad things, of course, and. <laughs> right when we got on, right when we got on air, he called me Jeremiah, and I ended that podcast right then and there. So
0: <laughs> that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> I'm not that small. <laughs> uh,
1: but no, I thought it was. I thought it was hilarious. Um, anyway, so so yeah, man. Wel- welcome back on. I guess uh, again, you usually do this about a month. I think it's been probably around a month or so uh, since mm-hmm. we since we got you back on
0: here. Anything been going on 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 your end? Oh man, I feel like what i don't remember if we had added julia our most recent coach last time we talked or not um we just recently added another coach to our team which has been amazing been one of my clients for a very long time somebody i personally met her for a long time so it's been so cool to actually have her all on our team um she's been absolutely crushing it so that's like definitely one of the biggest developments what uh speaking of brandon we all went as a team to the physique education collective in dallas what two weekends ago now That was super cool as well. It was awesome to be around just like I've gone to a decent amount of business events that are much more geared towards like, Hey, these are the people that are crushing it in the marketing realm, et cetera. And it was super cool to like be in that room because it was very much like Brandon, for example, or all these people that are like, the top lines when it comes to coaching and just so smart. So that, like, that was super cool. Like it's Brandon, Austin Stout, Warren Conlon, all these people that I've been learning from for so long it was it was awesome to be able to be there as a team, especially I got to just learn from them. Um, so as far as the coaching side of things goes, that's kind of what we've been up to with my own training and nutrition. I have been in a straight phase for the last four weeks now And I am actually—I know we talked about this a while back—but I'm actually starting to cut. um, I think tomorrow, actually, or by this coming week at latest. So I'm I'm stoked for that as well, dude. As you know, it's it's fun to just—I I I love this is a—and I I know we talked about this as well. But I love I love cutting. I love being in the fat loss phase. Like there's something about just like how regimented you get, and just like how structured your life is that just like feels good, even like being a little bit hungry sometimes after being in a building phase for so long, like it just feels good. And it's, it's fun to like, I think fat loss phases are almost kind of addicting to some people because it is like so much more instant dopamine. Whereas like a building phase is very much something we don't really see pay off until it's like, okay, we through the building phase. Maybe it look a little bigger, but also look a little bit fluffier. And then like at the end of the fat loss phase, then it's like, okay, now I see everything that I built and now I've unveiled that. But like in an actual fat loss phase, it's much more like, I don't want to say instant feedback, but the feedback, that like, okay, I'm doing something right. I'm actually seeing myself change week to week is just such a fun process, especially when you start to get super lean. And it's like, okay, every week i am seeing new vascularity, like, Oh shit, I've never seen that vein before. That's super cool. Like, I have a lot of my clients that are like in this place right now. And it's so cool to see how excited everyone is when it's like, Oh shit, I've never seen this vein before. That's crazy. Or like, it, it, it's just fun.
1: Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point you bring up about, it's more like, and I, you just get that instant feedback basically where it's like, okay, you know, like what you're doing is working. Whereas like when you are in a building phase, you definitely, you just don't get that feedback. And I I had this thought last night. I remember, cause I, I did, I did my steps and then I took a shower and I was thinking, I was like, God, I do just feel like so much more regimented. And like, I'm just have more, I don't know what it is. And, and I was just wondering how we could make that, like, how can you make that like that for for like maintenance or like a building phase. You know what I mean? I feel like if you can somehow like do that, you can get probably get people to stick with that process much more. And like you said, that's a good thought too, that people probably do get addicted to that feeling um, as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's probably why they which get themselves. That. Right. If, if they do it, if they do it for, for too long, which obviously we, we talk about that a lot that, you know, again, we see a lot of people that get in that, mindset for too long and they do it too often. And that's for them, that that's not great. But for some people, you know, a fat loss phase may be good. So yeah, I'm just wondering if there's, I, I think the trick would be to find a way to somehow get clients to be able to have that same feeling during a building phase and in a maintenance phase. Cause I agree. That's, that's where a lot of clients, you know, I feel like they get like, I, I don't know if you hear this, but I, I do feel like I hear it a little bit more during like maintenance phases or building phases. Like, oh, I just, I just feel like I'm kind of in like a, like, uh, I'm just kind of in a, a weird place motivation wise right now, or I just feel like I'm kind of stuck right now. Do you, you seem to get that a lot during those? Like,
0: yeah, within that, I mean, one, I think it's making sure you're putting your focus on different things, right? So very much like with our clients and building phases, I'm putting a lot bigger emphasis on what we're seeing in the log book. How are your pumps? How are you feeling in the gym? Are you noticing how much stronger you're getting? Right. Like we saw these crazy changes here. That's, that's amazing. Right like very much focusing on where performance is at. Um, And also I think it's a hard thing because I also think there's a time and a place for us to like, Hey, we're in a building phase. Okay. We're going to implement a free meal here. Right. And maybe it is the fact that we can see like, okay, you've taken a free meal once per week where you didn't track that. Um, You had some wine, you had some pizza or whatever it was. And then like, our win here that we're seeing is, hey, that didn't like have this massive detrimental effect on your body composition you're maintaining or like slowly gaining just like we want you to be. And like, look how cool it is that we can like enjoy this dietary flexibility. You can have more meals out and you can do all these things. I think it's just like a different season and understanding that like with that, like what we have to focus on is gonna be a little bit different. Um, I also think it's helpful, like, within most clients in a building phase and like for myself, I will still try to create like, Hey, here's basically my quote unquote meal plan for the week where I'm going to like plan a day and my fitness basically plan on repeating that across most of the week. So we can also have that structure. I think a lot of times just the thing with building a building phase is people think like, okay, I have a lot more room in the macro, so I can kind of just bring it and make whatever work. And I, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, I feel like, but that typically sets people up for failure. Basically how it usually plays out is at least for me it, without structure is I don't eat very much at all in the mornings. And then it's 9 PM and it's like, fuck, I still have to eat 200 grams of carbs. <laughs> and like, all oh, yep. I still have to eat so much food. And again, that's probably not going to be most ideal for muscle growth. Like I think typically I like to put a little bit, uh, it depends on the client, honestly, but honestly, like, I like to also stress how important nutrient timing is going to be here, especially if it's like, hey, I want to optimize everything, I want to build as much muscle as possible, um, and I want to try to mitigate as much fat gain as I can. Then, okay, we know that, hey, like we want to make sure that you have these very large boluses of carbs, both pre and post workout, that's when insulin sensitivity is going to be the highest, and all these, all these different factors within nutrient timing, just how we're structuring our day. I think that if we can dig into that and also help somebody correlate that to the end goal of and like right now this might this might seem like splitting hairs but if you like every day for the next six months or every day you trade for the next six months you are either very well fueled and recovering very well because your your time is on point or you're not paying much attention to those and um thus your workouts are kind of mediocre the recovery is kind of mediocre like over the course of six months it's gonna be a significant difference in like how much muscle tissue you had right and then at the end of the fat wall space like this is going to be like basically all the same or does my physique look a lot different? And then again, like really, I think for most people though, like the thing that replaces like seeing yourself getting leaner and like seeing the scale go down or measurements go down is how's the logbook progressing. Right. And can we get somebody focused on that? Or like how are your pumps? How are your disruption? Are you getting better at executing movement? Even like the logbook, I would say like, I don't want to get people like too caught up in, like, hey, if I'm not hitting PRs every single week, then I'm not progressing because that's just not the case. But even though, like, oh, wow, like I can really feel my glutes working so much more on this, which again, I don't want to just focus just on sen- t- sensation, but I think you understand where I'm coming from here. We're like, wow, that movement, I really can like feel that movement disrupting and doing what it should be doing. I think if we get focused on things like that, it helps, but also just understanding no matter what they're just going to be different phases. And I think fat loss is still typically like the most motivating for most people.
1: Yeah. I think, yeah, you, you brought up a good point. Basically reframing it to like, okay, now, instead of just focusing on like, uh, you know, body measurement type stuff, you know, we're going to focus more on training performance and really, really reframing that and making the client realize how important that is, you know, we need maybe sleep too stuff like that, really focusing on how, important those are during that. And that's again, where having a good coach can, can be super important. But like you said, they are, they are different and they each have different goals and it, just things are going to be different between, between each one. And again, I think reframing it can, can be super important. So uh, cool, man. That's,
0: that's uh, you got one more thing you wanted to add I think to think One other thing. Sorry. Last thing. On no, that. You're good. no, you're good. Uh, I also think it's helpful to compare. <laughs> like if you have a client you've been working with for a good period of time, this weight to the last time they were at this weight right so a lot of times like i I posted this with coach julie the other day and a couple other clients where it was like her in 2020 versus her in 2022 at the exact same weight right one was coming down in a fat loss phase and then one was going up in a building phase and it was so cool to see like for her look how much different your physique looks at the same weight right like in her most recent picture, like we could definitely see her abs are still so popping. She's clearly had a lot, she clearly had a lot more lean muscle tissue than she did before. So that's also in, like another cool thing to like not just look at like, okay, the scale's heavier than it was in my fat loss phase, but rather, okay, last time I was this weight relative to like now, how has my physique changed in that time? That that can also be helpful.
1: Yeah, no, that that's a good point. And I think too, as you were saying this, this is where like again taking more than just like body weight can be super helpful, you know, Mm and tracking this stuff over time. So you can actually see it because again, I could see where if you're not taking these things and you're just tracking like body weight where you could easily get um, demotivated by, you know, again, just seeing the the scale weight go up. And I, you know, I've been there, I'm sure you've been there too, where in building phases, you like, once you get like to kind of these levels where you, you have gained more weight, it, it's really hard to like differentiate, like, am I looking better? Am I not? And you can like get in your head oh, yeah. if you're not, if you're not like, again, don't have somebody have a good coach for there for you. Or again, you're not taking this, this information either or getting that data as well.
0: Oh yeah. That's like, if you look at it, the number of people that have successfully gone through fat loss phases without a coach is pretty low. But the number of people that have gone through successful building phases without a coach, I would say is <laughs> way lower than that. Even lower. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's even harder to be objective with yourself than it is in a fat loss phase, I think. Oh
1: yeah, no, absolutely. Cause, cause yeah, like I said, I mean, just even in the last one, it's like every time I go through a building phase, I'm just like, damn, am I, I just, you start to look back at pictures of when you're leaner and then you're like, damn, am I like, actually, you know, but it's like, you just have oh, to, yeah? you have to be, it's just harder. Yeah. Like you said, it's just hard to be very, uh, I guess would that be subjective or objective with yourself there? Subjective. Mm. Mm-hmm. I always say
0: objective. Honestly, though, that's a good question, that I don't know the answer
1: to I'm sure somebody can tell us, but subjective or objective, either way, whatever. Um, Cool, man. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's uh, awesome. Glad we kind of dove into that. Did you have anything else you wanted to finish up on that? Are you ready for the questions? I'm ready.
0: Let's get it. Cool. So
1: first one I have is how much fiber is too much when in a building phase uh, and or weight loss? So I guess really, are you uh, like? Do you kind of have do you set limits here, depending on if it's a weight loss or a, a building phase, or maybe just in general?
0: Yeah, it depends quite a bit. Um, typically, the guideline I throw out there is about 15 grams of fiber per 1,000 calories consumed. Fiber, there's a lot of variability too. So, like, if somebody is having digestive issues, so typically the thing we know is like either too much or too little fiber can also cause digestive issues. So when we're looking at fiber, uh, there is a ton of variability with like what one person would feel good with versus the other. Um, And even within that, like getting into like insoluble fiber. So typically, like if we have someone that's having digestive issues, say you're having constipation or you're having like consistent diarrhea, you're like going to the bathroom four or five times a day a lot of times that will dig into like the ratio of soluble versus insoluble fiber actually, and digging a little bit deeper into like we need to add one or the other based on your symptoms. So sometimes I mean, it can even be like, Hey, it's not actually the amount of fiber you're consuming, but the specific type of fiber we're kind of getting off into the weeds then, but it does, it does honestly come up relatively frequently Um, past that. Like there's no, nobody should above this point or below this point. Again, typically if you're somewhere between 10, I would say if you're somewhere between 10 to 20 grams per thousand calories consumed on average, you will be in a pretty good place. But I mean, once we get past like about 40 grams for most people. So like, for example, if you're eating 3000 calories and you need 60 grams of fiber, we might start getting a little bit high. So then basically I would base it off of digestive issues. So for example, like I have a dude i work with who had really, really struggled for a very long time to gain weight. Right. And then when we started coaching together, he worked with a bunch of coaches, trainers in the past. When we started coaching together, one of the things we saw was he was eating a lot of food, but again, he just like couldn't gain, which was pretty rare. Um, but then like his digestion issues, basically he was just shitting his brains out. Like he was <laughs> pooping like six, six times a day. Um, and for him, actually the thing that we established was, he was actually going too hard on the fiber, um, too, too was, far you say, too much. You yeah. So he was actually like very much like eating. And this is, I always like when I tell this story, I always like to be careful with it, because I will say that's like one client I have seen in hundreds and hundreds of clients. that was actually eating too many whole foods <laughs> to the point where it was detrimental. So I don't think that for 99.99% of people, this is actually a problem, but like in his case, we actually worked through his food choices Pull the fiber back. And like for him, what I believe he's eating like 2,800 calories right now, I might be a little bit closer to 3,000 than that. But for him, we've established like really it seems there's a very clear trend where he goes over um, like 35 to 40 grams of fiber, digestion really starts to take a hit. Right. It's also like cool to see though, like as we figure that out and change of his food sources, how consistently he's been able to make gains, and, like seeing weight actually come on. He's built so much muscle tissue since then. Um, but again, it's very much like I would just base it off of digestive issues as well. So like, if you seem like it's a little bit below that, about 10 to 20 grams per, or get yeah, about 15 grams per every thousand calories consumed and you have the digestive issues, I would start by adding another 10 to 15 grams of fiber and see how you feel. And same thing if it's like, Hey, okay, I am eating well above that guideline. And I'm having digestive issues. Okay, let's try to pull back by 10 to 15 grams and see how you feel. Does that that improve the symptoms? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, again, there's no
1: like exact number here on this and you just kind of have to take it kind of client by client and see how they are specifically doing. Um, it kind of sounds like when you're, when you're trying to build, gain weight, you, again, I don't want to say you don't want to get less fiber, but you probably want to be a little bit more careful with how much fiber you are getting because mm-hmm. I, I think this is a, a trap people get themselves into when they are trying to gain weight is they do try to do it a little too "quote unquote" clean, and because of that, they end up makes it really hard to get the amount of food that they need to get in. They're doing it mostly through you know just foods that are high in fiber. One thing I will say too, where it could be, I could see where it can become an issue where too much fiber is an issue is if you eat something like uh, like too many like Quest bars or something like that because they're pretty high. Oh, in yeah, fiber. They're like point. they're like pretty high in fiber, right? Yeah. Quest bars. I could see where if you have like two, you know. I'm sure some people have a couple of those a day when they're trying to get fiber in or protein in, and then you start eating too many of those and then you run into an issue oh, yeah. there. So,
0: no, that's a good point, dude. Quest, quest bars. I can't, I can't eat it, even a single quest bar because it just jacks my stomach up. Uh, but yeah, that's, I would say again, like keep it in mind. It should be mostly from whole foods as well as a good point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, no, I, th- I think we summed that up pretty well. Uh, again, I, if you're not going enough, you probably going to the bathroom enough. You probably want to add in a little bit more. And then if you're going, you know, three, four times a day, you might want to look at bumping that down a, a little bit, but there's a wide
0: range in there. And I mean, it could be either way. Like it could be like, you're not eating enough. So thus you're going very frequently also. So I would basically just look like if you have either of those symptoms, I'd look at where you're at relative to that, about 15 grams per pound of body weight recommendation and adjust around or per thousand calories, not a pound of body weight. That'd be adjust around (laughs) that.
1: Yeah. Cool. So the next one is uh, somebody's cutting, they're doing five days of deficit and two days at maintenance. And really they just, I I think here, they just kind of wanted to know your thoughts on it. Is that something that can work for them? So maybe if you want to explain how that could, how that can work and
0: if that would be a a viable uh, option for them. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. At the end of the day for fat loss, it's going to come down to, um, your total weekly calorie intake, right? It doesn't matter if we're in a 3,500 calorie deficit because we ate 500 calories less seven days a week, or we ate like a slightly larger deficit five days of the week and ate right around maintenance two days a week. That's perfectly fine. Um, I will say I used to be a lot more into like calorie cycling like this than I am now. I think it's something that like in, Theory makes a lot of sense. We would think that it would be easier for people to stick to the plan if they have these two days of maintenance and application. What I found is most times those two higher days, sometimes people can just get a little bit too flexible and those actually end up offsetting the work that they've done the other five days. Really my approach for fat loss is typically now like this all depends on where the client's at, right? So if it's someone where like, Hey, um, I want to eat, I wanna be able to go out and have a day night with my husband and then me and my kids have this baking day, right? And like those are so important to me. I don't wanna to have to give those up as I lose body fat. Okay, we're probably gonna work something like that in. Now, for most people, that it is like, hey, I just wanna get the fat off. I think typically it makes the most sense to just get in and get out as quick as we can, relative to like what the client is willing to give up. Right. Like for most, what I'll say as well is I think for like for most people. If it's, hey, we can get this fat loss phase done in eight weeks by us just dieting straight through, or maybe we'll take like kind of quote, unquote, I don't want to say intuitive, but like flexible refeed days where like, okay, hey, it really seems like you'd benefit from a refeed. Let's implement one here. Maybe we do the same thing again in a couple weeks. Or we can get that diet done in 12 weeks, 13 weeks by taking this 5-2 approach. I would typically err towards like, hey, let's just get you out of the diet to the place where you're eating more food every day sooner right because the thing to understand as well is like with a 5-2 approach like that you still feel like you're dieting all the time basically right like it's never like a it's never as good as it is when it's at maintenance and it's just like oh yeah i can just consistently eat a lot of food so honestly i think that like well in theory for a lot of people it makes sense In application it's kind of like just prolonging the misery so to speak where the reality is no matter what dieting just isn't going to be Right. So my approach is typically, hey, let's get it done with as quick as we can relative to like what the client is willing to give up and like how flexible or unflexible they want to be. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think I think really like you like you kind of mentioned, again, as with all this stuff, it really comes down to the client where they're at, things like that. Like that's going to be super important. Again, if you have a client where, like you said, they have a couple important things that are, that they they just can't get rid of, like it makes sense to potentially bring this in. But again, this is like you said, this is something where an application, this made, like, in theory, this makes a lot of sense, but in terms of actually applying it, it, it gets kind of, it can get messy for some people. And again, this just yeah. depends on, on where the client's at uh, just because I think there are a couple of things on that. One, I, I, you're changing up how, like what they have to do from day to day. And, and we just mm-hmm. talked about when it comes to fat loss, you just get so regimented. And I feel like if you're just changing that up, it like it can make right. it confusing. Right. So there's that. And then I think you made a post on this recently, actually, but you'll see people that maybe when they go, this goes back to like hunger, you'll see people that are, because you are having two days at maintenance, you kind of have to go even lower during those five mm-hmm. days than you normally would. And that can yeah. potentially spike your hunger. You're so hungry. Exactly. Then you have these quote unquote two day kind of like freer days or two days with higher calories. And I think at that point, you're more likely to potentially overeat because you're so hungry from earlier in the week or whenever your days are. It's easier, everything everything tastes better. Um, so it's easier to overeat. And because you have more calories, you're more likely to make less like your choice, your food choices probably aren't as great as they normally would be. And those foods taste mm-hmm. better. And then when you're in a deficit, they taste even better. So Yeah.
0: No. In in application, when this actually works, that I've seen it is like if you have someone who is pretty experienced, they don't like to like partake in alcohol or too many meals out. And it's basically like, oh, cool. I have another hundred grams of carbs today. Cool. I'm going to fill this with rice cakes and then I'm going to have like a sweet potato. <laughs> right. Whereas like speaking to what you described, I think a lot of times it can almost tie into the mentality that people already struggle with, where it's like, I'm going to diet my ass off five days a week and then I'm so hungry. But also we know like, oh, cool. I have these two days where I have these higher calories. And it kind of is like from a middle's perspective, just sets people up to, go over on their intake also it used to be thought that there were all these metabolic benefits to where like hell yeah this would help keep our metabolism in a better place as we diet this would help maintain better hormones but really that's seems to have been disproven as well like linear fat loss versus taking two high days and five of those days from like a physiological perspective doesn't really seem to have any real benefits i know there was like the bill Campbell refeed study. But like the there is some debate about the actual mechanisms of like, hey, they measure these people in a pretty depleted state. So thus it it like showed that the refeed group had more muscle mass than the non-refeed group, but also the refeed group had just refilled the muscle collection stores, which would manipulate the DEXA. So um I don't think I have anything else to add on
1: Yeah, I, I think again this is something that just it can work, but you, you have to be aware of, of the, of the potential trade-offs of of doing this, Mm -hmm. you know, again, getting you out of your routine, um, also the potential, and again, even a hunger on those days that you are eating, but then when you do eat those, what, what the day after maintenance, what does that look like for you? If you're somebody that it causes you to be hungrier, like you have to, that's where it just comes down to to the client. So, um, no, I think, I think we sum that up perfectly. So let's dive, uh, into the next one. Uh, let me see which one I want to go over here. Like I said, I had a, you so <clears throat> um hip hip range of motion uh struggled to get low on squats leg movements uh physically hurts do i need to stretch more to get a better range of motion or continue and try to build more muscle to help any recommendations here
0: so the struggling low on squats specifically
1: yeah i you and again i'm sure this is going to be hard to like say without like actually seeing the movement but but yes they struggle to get low on squats and leg movements it physically hurts yeah
0: and it, it hurts did they say where it hurts? Did not say,
1: did not specify where it physically hurts. I'm assuming hips, but I, you know, I, I know
0: that's kind of a broad. Okay. Yeah, no, no, we can work with that. So, I mean, a couple of things there, what I would say typically, like somebody's struggling to hit depth in their squats much more often than it's like a hip mobility issue is often an ankle mobility issue. So they're like elevating your heels, using squat shoes, standing on a 10, putting your heels on a 10 pound plate or like a squat wedge would be much more ideal. But a lot of times it is like, if we have, so basically like when we're looking at ankle mobility, your ankle mobility is going to be the limiter as far as how far forward your knees can move in the squat, right? So like, if we look at the line of force in a squat, I might be going a little bit too deep here, but if we look at the line of force in the squat, basically it is going to be gravity pushing straight down through that bar right like straight to the floor there's a straight line right there now essentially we need to like keep that bar in that path so if we can't drive our knees as far forward our hips have to keep going further and further and further back in order to basically keep us in balance so we don't just fall over forwards or fall over backwards right so um i there i will say like i don't think i've seen a situation where it's been hey we really really need to focus on hip mobility a lot of times it it almost always comes down to ankle mobility so it might actually be the most helpful thing to try like hey just elevate your heels see how they feel when you go through a squat pattern that's typically where i would start i would also look at your stance, how wide or narrow that is. Like it might be like you're trying to squat a little bit too wide. I would honestly just go with something that feels comfortable that you could play around with their stance with, with, see how that impacts things. Um, I would really say more than likely though, those are probably going to be the two primary issues over like uh, an actual hip mobility issue where you can't achieve. Because the thing is like in a squat, especially we're not getting – we're getting hip flexion for sure. Uh, but it's not like a huge over-exaggerated range of motion unless we're doing like a low bar, like hybrid kind of good morning type squat. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, no that makes sense. I, I think all those, all those are good. I like the, the squat shoes and the, in the heel elevation. Cause that definitely helps you get, um, you can, you can kind of drive that knee forward and get more, more quad in it. Um, one thing I was going to say on this too, uh, you know, I, I, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think those are all, all great. And so I guess really there, it's just, just, I think practicing whatever that, that is too. Right. And I think, I feel like a lot of times with squats, a lot of people will go too wide and you will see that too. Um, mm-hmm. people just set up super wide on that. Um, one thing that I always like to do, and this is a little bit more hip mobility. This is what I was going to bring up. I just came to me calves, can calves, can like tight calves affect ankle mobility too? Like, because I feel like a lot of people have super tight calves too. Can that affect ankle mobility in in, in a lot of people?
0: It's a good question that I, I don't know yeah. the answer to.
1: Honestly, I'm I'm terrible at like, you know, the, this this type of stuff. But but yeah, no, I I agree. I think I like the squat shoes. I like the 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 heel wedges. I think those are are, are great. Um, I also, yeah, I also feel like with this, with these types of questions too, I feel like it's really hard to like say what to do exactly when you're not seeing the person's like form and because maybe it's a, a technique thing, right. That they're, that they're potentially doing that that could be causing this.
0: Yeah. It's pretty rare. It's very, very rare that the answer is actually like, Hey, you need to take on this flexibility routine, right? There's almost always something with an execution of a movement. Hey, can we elevate your heels? for example, can we like choose a different squat pattern? And again, it's not like you should be able, I don't want to say should, most people will be able to like, if we adjust a few of these things, most people will be able to squat perfectly fine. And I mean, even then, like if we are just like doing a bunch of stretches that you're not building strength alongside that, like Jordan Lips and I talked about this on a podcast the other day, like more, more flexibility without strength or more, more mobility without also building strength around that is just us creating more instability. Right. So even then, like if your body's stopping you from going into this deeper squat and all of a sudden we like go and do some stretches and then all of a sudden we can drop down to this deeper squat and the load, we're going to be very weak in that position. You're probably you're more likely to get hurt. Right. So it's pretty rare that it's like, okay, we just need to do the stretching routine and this is the issue. I don't really even like prescribe much mobility at all It's almost always it's like an issue with execution or like the understanding of the movement that's causing the actual issue.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and you see that a lot with, I, I'm sure you see this sometimes in males, but you'll see that a lot with, with females that are, they already come to you kind of like hyper mobile in a way. And like, they, again, they, they're flexible, but they're not strong in those like super like r- range of motions and, and, that honestly can be more dangerous. You have to really learn how to, you have to like really slow them down and really teach Mm -hmm. them how to do that. So I think this is where like, again, practicing, like for example, practicing the squat and just getting better at that and like kind of increasing your range of motion over time. I think that can be more beneficial than like you said, trying to do any type of like flex um, flex routine or mobility routine or anything
0: like that. Yeah. It's just like something, the idea that you need to do flexibility work to be healthy is something that's pretty deeply ingrained, but it's like, Hey, if we can move through these movement patterns, squat, hinge, lunge, push, pull with a full range of motion without any pain, that's probably not actually like what we necessarily need.
1: Right. Cool. So, uh, the next one is, let's see here. So my client has been in a fat loss phase for eight weeks. Uh, she is still seeing inches slowly come off. However, she has had a couple, she has had a week of a couple pounds. Of weight gain, should she keep going and factor it up to something like poor sleep, missed workouts, or is it time to change it up?
0: Oh man. Um yeah, so I'll try to answer this within the context. So basically it sounds like she's continuing to lose interest but she saw the scale increase a couple of pounds. And should she continue to lose fat or no? Yep, pretty much. Or, yeah, or, so I guess, I mean, or I
1: guess should she make any changes or or anything like that?
0: Yeah. So again, like keep in mind as a listener, this is with pretty limited context, but um, there's so many things that can cause the scale to fluctuate, right? It could have been stresses higher. She had more salt. It could be like maybe you entered her in a new training phase and inflammation is a little bit higher. And that's why the scale was up a couple pounds. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would basically just try to get to the root of why, you think the scale increased like in talk this is talking to her about like hey how was sleep how is your stress right now stress been higher what's your digestion like are you a little bit more stopped up than normal right but i mean at the end of the day if we are still seeing her lose inches albeit a little bit slowly we know she's still losing some body fat given she's tracking or she's measuring herself accurately so i wouldn't say like (sighs) I mean, I think like how I see most people lose weight, like how it actually plays out, very few people linearly just lose weight. Almost always it's like, hey, there's five to seven days where the scale is just staying stuck. And then like, right when somebody emails me, I'm so frustrated that the scale is stuck. I know it's always going to be the next day that we're going to see the scale drop. Like sometimes if I have a client's email come through like five, 6 p.m. That's like, hey, I'm super annoyed. I've been doing everything right. The scale isn't dropping. I'll literally just wait till the next day because I know like almost 100% certainty. The next morning I'm having an email in the box that says, oh, never mind." I actually dropped like two, three pounds, whatever. Right, so I mean, I would first look through, hey, like also I troubleshoot, how has adherence been, right? Has adherence been slipping any? I think that's important. I would look through their food logs. I would see if there's anything that stands out to you as far as where they could potentially be tracking inaccurately. accurately. Actually, I like to start this off by asking the client a question first. I think before we just like prescribe as coaches, if we can bring somebody else to that realization without me just telling you, Jeff, you're not tracking accurately. If you can tell me, Hey, Jeremiah, I realize that I'm not tracking accurately. And that's why my fat loss is slower. Why the scale is up. That's a lot more powerful than me just telling you that. Right. So typically I'll just frame it as like, Hey, in the past, I know that sometimes like when I've seen this happen in my own fat loss phases, here's the mistakes I was making. I was doing this where I wasn't tracking accurately. And like, we have a graphic that's like, here's how all these little nibbles, bites and tastes add up. Now, does any of this resonate with you? I just want to make sure we're on the same page before we have to like decrease calories or increase movement more, right? I want to keep you losing all as much as possible. And then if it's like, Hey, this stands out to me. Cool. Okay. It was an issue. If not, then you, that's typically when I would look through a client's food blog, see if anything stands out to you. Now, if that's not the case, um, and they're still losing inches, then it's basically like, do you, do they need to be losing faster? Um, to basically stick with the timeline that you have laid out for them, which is when I would make an adjustment. But I mean, if they're okay with losing a little bit slower and that like is in accordance with the plan, they don't necessarily have to, you don't necessarily have to change anything. Does that answer that question?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, no, no, it definitely does. You know, again, the big takeaways there is, like you said, it's not linear. You're not just going to keep losing weight week over week. This is where, and I know you do this, you know, not only just not like taking one way into the next, but taking the averages for the week. I think that can be important, but you know, he kind of mentioned in here, should she keep going and factor it up to like poor sleep or missed workouts? It's like, well, that's kind of a big deal, right? Like if you are missing workouts or your sleep sucks, or you're not adherent to what you're doing, like that is going to play a role, like you said, in, in this too. So uh, I always, I always, I, I, I always think that that's probably the where you want to look at first is are they doing the things that they need to do? do in order to get there and if that's not the case then that obviously need like you said that obviously needs to be fixed before like you said potentially decreasing calories because again who knows maybe this particular client i mean they're eight they're eight weeks in. that's pretty far along in a fat loss phase right i think at eight weeks depending on where they were at before how big their deficit is things like that i mean you may be starting to see some things start to get pretty challenging you know eight weeks in and if they're already you're if they're already like kind of low calorie does it make sense like two things is, is it make more sense to, like you said, decrease it more. And because they are low calorie, like adherence is probably a lot tougher than what you think it is. And that is Mm -hmm. where you need to to look at. Cause I know you've seen this and I've seen it like too many times people are like, Oh, I I need to change my calories, but then you dig into it. And then it's like, well, adherence isn't that." That obviously needs to be what we, what we work on. And I know James, you know, James Krieger talked about this yet. He had a a presentation on this dietary adherence is, is fact is, like that's the number one factor in terms of if a diet is going to work is if you can actually stick to it. And and again, the longer you're in a fat loss phase, the tougher adherence is going to be. And this is why we talk about not always being in a, in a, in a fat loss phase because for this mm-hmm. reason, right, it is going to get tougher over time. And because of that adherence is going to be, be tougher. Um, but yeah, I mean, poor sleep. I mean, that, that will play a role. Uh, uh, absolutely. So I agree. I think before just making a change, you know, again, making sure you're I making sure, yeah. Dig deeper and make sure the, the, again, the, the body weight is, you're not just taking like one way into, you know, make sure that that process is nailed down too, in terms of like, you know, doing it first thing in the morning, post bathroom, pre-food or drink, doing it multiple times a week. You know, I think looking at that too is, is important, but like you said, she's seeing just yeah. come off. So, you know, we can be fairly certain that fat loss is still happening. And this is where, yeah. you know, we, we talk a lot about the scale. Like this is where I think the scale can be just it can hurt sometimes because sometimes we put too much focus on that when it's like progress picture improving inches are improving but no, nope, scale's got to go down it's like well i mean if you're looking mm-hmm. better you know what's what does
0: it matter what the scale says yeah not and especially with the female client like where she had her menstrual cycle i that can that too. find a big difference as well i would be very hesitant to just based on a single week of Like the scale being a little bit higher, just like say, like, hey, we need to change something without digging deeper into like all those factors we discussed. Because I think if you work through all that, you should be able to kind of identify like what's happening there. Because also understand that, like, let's say that for the past past seven weeks, these macros that have worked very well for her. She was losing like one to two pounds per week. It's not like all of a sudden, oh, that's metabolic adaptation. She was hit. All of a sudden, she's not only is she not losing on this intake, but she's actually gaining on this intake, right? Like we had like 700 calories per day worth of metabolic adaptation just kick in overnight. That's not how it's going to work. So there's definitely like something else going on there. Um, so probably nothing needs adjusted. It just needs troubleshot a bit more. Yep. No,
1: absolutely. Cool. Let's dive into the next one. So, um, and, and this kind of goes off of the, off of what we just talked about. So I think this is a good time to chat about it. So is it normal to have like a five to six pound spike on the scale from one day to the next?
0: Hmm. I mean, from, like, one morning to the next, it's going to depend some on the size of the individual. I would say, like, if you're eating foods dramatically out of the normal, so, like, let's say that six days out of the week you eat pretty normal, and then you have, like, a free meal, and you go smash, like, a pizza. um, You have a lot more food, a lot more carbohydrates, a lot more sodium than normal. We can see, like, some pretty significant spikes on the scale. That said, I would say, like, if we're seeing, like, every day, my weight is fluctuating five to six pounds. That's not, and you're weighing yourself at the same time. I think that's important as well. Like, I think people underestimate or don't really think about like, okay. Sometimes I weigh myself first thing in the morning after the restroom. Sometimes I weigh myself after like I've eaten breakfast and lunch. Like that could be a factor here as well. I always tell my clients, like, hey, we're going to weigh first thing in the morning after using the restroom before eating or drinking anything. Because otherwise, that's going to be skewed, right? There's going to be a lot more variability day to day. And what it looks like, uh, I would say if your diet is really like the food composition of your diet is relatively consistent, you shouldn't be seeing like these massive ups and downs in s- scale weight. Um, it can happen from time to time. And again, like the situation that I described with a food meal, it's not abnormal. Uh, but again i would say to like see a six pound spike it would probably be an individual that was over 200 pounds at least um is what i would expect what are your thoughts on that
1: that's a good point you bring up and something that obviously needs to be said you know obviously the this is where like again general recommendations don't always work you have to take the client specific body in, into consideration here and somebody that it does weigh more that you know, again they're they're going to see a larger potentially a larger fluctuation from day to day. You know, whereas if somebody, you can't compare somebody to hundred pounds to 200 pounds, if that hundred pound person sees like five to six pounds, that may be like, well, okay, something's going on, but five to six pounds on a 200 pound person is, is less of a, a difference. So again, the, the heavier you are, the, the, you might see more of a fluctuation. That's, that's a great point. Right. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think the more, if you see that happen a lot, that's definitely a sign of like, okay, something, something's going on. Right. If, if the more often it happens, if it's just like a one-off thing, it's probably not a big deal, but also to your point, uh, the, when you weigh in does make a big difference. And even though I think just how we are with everything, I think you're like, Oh, well it was only like an hour difference of when I weighed in, it wasn't that big of a deal, but it's like, like you said, if you Mm -hmm. normally weigh in under, you know, when you, after you go to the bathroom with no food, like doing that, After a meal is going to make a big
0: difference. So, also look into that too. But yeah, yeah. I would say, like, for clients that we work with, I don't see that happening on a consistent basis. Again, like maybe once a week we'll see like a spike. And it's like it's normal for weight to fluctuate up and down. But if it's like this constant, like every day, it's like, oh, I'm up five pounds, I'm down five pounds, I'm up five pounds that's very abnormal, I would say. Yeah. Something's
1: definitely going on there. And that that could go back to, you know, digestion or like we talked about, you know, something with fiber, who who knows? I mean, it's, it's hard to say what exactly it would be without, like you said, digging into it more. But again, I think if that happens often, you probably want to uh, look into that now. I'm assuming, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. So, like there's probably a genetic component to that too, right? Where like some people naturally are just going to retain a little bit more water um, at at times than others, or is it pretty much like stable from person to person? I, I would think there would be some genetic component to it where like some people just naturally retain a little bit more water when they have like saltier foods or whatever it may be.
0: Yeah. I think from anecdote, I would say that's true some clients are just going to hold on to like water a little bit longer than others. And this is probably multifactorial. I mean, it probably also ties to like, Hey, and this is, which also comes back to genetics. Like, okay, how are you wired mentally? How well do you manage stress? When you see the scale is up, does that stress you out? Or is it like, Oh, Hey, that's not a big deal. Right. Like it is definitely multifactorial. I'll say, I don't know. Like, hey, this is the mechanism by which some people are more predisposed to holding more water weight or retaining it longer than others. But definitely an anecdote, as I'm sure you've seen as well, some clients will just retain water a little bit longer than others do. So I think yeah, I think that's probably safe to say. Yeah.
1: Cool. So uh, same person, um, and I think this is going to be a quick one, uh, but he, he wanted to know. So when's the best time to weigh measure pasta before or after cooking?
0: Mm, it doesn't really matter as long as you do it consistently. I could, I like to weigh my foods before I cook them. Just that's how I do things. But I mean, before or after, it really doesn't matter. It's kind of like using a scale. Like it doesn't matter if your scale weighs you five pounds heavier than other scale. As long as you're using that scale consistently, then that's the trend that you'll be following and adjusting around. Right. Same thing here.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's, that's what I just consistency with it. Just don't one time weigh it when it's cooked and then the next time right. before cook, like just, just get consistent with it. because that, that essentially becomes your baseline and that's what you go off of. Right. Uh, that's right. Because that's the thing with like tracking. I, I, it's just so like, it's already, I mean, it can be somewhat accurate, but it it's going to be inaccurate. Like just because of like, you know, food labels are going to already be off. I think by like, they can be mm-hmm. up by up like 20%. So that's already going to be mm-hmm. off. So it's like, you just need to get, consistent with what you do. And from there you just make adjustments rather than, cause I'm sure when clients come to you, they, you know, they think you're going to give them like exact macro numbers when it's like, I mean, it's good to aim for those, but it's like, yeah. Cal- count calories is like, it's just not a precise thing anyway. So it's like, there's no need to like get
0: caught up in like oh, yeah.
1: my new things. Just get consistent, get your baseline.
0: No, I thought to I, a lot of women we work with like one of our initial conversations is around, flexible dieting because a lot of times it'll be the situation where like within our first couple of weeks it'll be like hey i went out with this meal and honestly like i was so overwhelmed by the idea of tracking it perfectly that i didn't track it right it's, like we have to understand again like two chickens on the barnyard really one of those chickens like probably has like one of those four ounce chicken breasts is probably like 27 grams of protein and one of those four ounce chicken breasts does like 22 grams of protein right but we log it all as whatever. Let's say twenty five grams of protein or four ounces of chicken breast. But even there, there is some variability. No matter what, we can't be perfect. Same thing goes for like restaurant meals out. If you just make your best guesstimate consistently and also don't bullshit yourself, where it's like, okay, I'm logging this lasagna as one hundred fifty calories. I found this entry in my fitness pal. Um, if you do that, you'll get the result. That's that's a good point, though. Well,
1: on that too, you know, you say just guess. And somebody hears that like, well, I'm just guessing what's the point. It's like, well, honestly, if, if you are like, this is where it's like, okay, at this point, you kind of have to decide like that. That's kind of the the trade-off that you make of like going out to eat is like, you don't, you know, you, it, good point. it's going to be in, like, it's going to be inconsistent. And that's where like, if for example, let's say you're in a fat loss phase, like And you're not losing fat like you'd like, and you like to go out to eat multiple times a week. This is where like, okay, you know, we can try to guess as best as we can, but just realize that the trade-off is it's not probably going to be super accurate, and you know, could potentially be your issue. And and that's the thing with restaurants too, that I think people don't realize is they don't give a shit about your macros. They don't care that you got to hit your macros. What's their only job? They want to get you to come back. So there's probably, if anything, way more calories in your meals out than you, than you think. And this is where just
0: eating out all the time can, can be problematic oh yeah no that's that's a very good point um there's nothing wrong with going out to eat if you're okay with accepting that trade-off like i i i have very very few of my clients that have told like hey outside of the exception of like hey we're a couple weeks out from a photo shoot um (laughs) then it's like hey we probably do want to try to avoid this but again, again like past that it's it's your, it's your decision to understand that with this is coming like the room for like some possible error, right? But also like, where does this align with your goals and trade-offs? A lot of people work with us because it is, hey, we want to turn this into a sustainable lifestyle. So educating you how to manage those things is important, right? But if it's like, either it's perfect or I'm failing, you're never going to get very far with this. So we have to look at it as a mindset of like, good enough here is going to be good enough to get the result. If you just do that consistently, right? Because a lot of people it's like, well, I can't be perfect. So fuck it. I'm not going to track it. And then, uh, because I'm not tracking, I'm just going to eat like (laughs) everything in sight. And then that's like, that's much more detrimental than like, Oh, I guess I made it, but it's not perfect. Yep. No.
1: Yeah. Great, great point there too. Like, again, there's, while it may not be perfect, there's things that we can do, that you can do to, to at least, we can give them better strategies at least to, to manage it much, much better than again, like you said, in that, just getting that effort mode and just eat anything and, and everything. Um, cool. So next let's dive into, let's see here. Uh, okay. So somebody asked about Turkester's, is it Turkester stone? Uh, and TRT, lots of buzz around it. This at the moment, is it actually bad science behind it? Uh, Turkester, it's like, uh, it's kind of a new supplement that people have been talking about. Have you, have you heard anything about it? So it's, I know of it.
0: I haven't looked into it. I'll say I have no idea. Cause it's not a, something that I've actually done the research on.
1: Me too. All I know is that from my understanding, and again, I haven't, I'm like you, I haven't done any research on it. It's that it's kind of a lot of buzz right now. That's really all it is. There's not much really backing it in terms of, I think it's supposed to do something with Testosterone. Um, at least based on that word, you'd think that it has something to do with testosterone. Now, what about TRT? Any, any, any thoughts there on that? Like, uh, do you, or same thing there with you, you don't really have any, um, you haven't really looked into it or anything like that.
0: I mean, I think TRT definitely, if it's the right time in the right place can be helpful. Um, the thing to understand about TRT is like a lot of young dudes, I think, the idea of getting on TRT is appealing because it's like, I'm going to get on TRT and I'm on testosterone now, so I'm going get, to gonna get fucking jacked. But the thing to understand with that, that is, like, they're not elevating your testosterone levels to outside of normal physiological ranges. So, thus, like, maybe with like, Brandon's a good person to talk to about this as well, because I know he has like a I, I've talked through this with him before, where it's like, maybe I believe the number was like right around two pounds of muscle, like maybe after a year of training, like in, let's say you had an extra 400 milligram or nanograms per deciliter of test. Um, let's say that like you were 400 points higher, basically, maybe you would add like an extra, like one to two pounds of muscle over the course of that year, but it's by no means like, holy shit, I I can tell, you know, whereas like if if you were just like in the physiologically relatively low, like towards the low end of the normal range. Right. So like for TRT, like if you're there where it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm still normal. I'm kind of closer to the low end of normal. Realistically, like you would probably just focus on lifestyle interventions, better managing stress, better managing sleep, better managing training volume and nutrition and probably get like those same effects. Now, if it's like, okay, you actually have low levels of t- testosterone you probably will make a pretty significant difference in your ability to add muscle tissue and now again it's not like it's unlikely that it's going to be like i'm just getting fucking swole now like it's not going to be the same as like actually being on steroids for example but you probably will see a significant difference in your ability to add muscle um you'll probably feel a lot better mentally more motivated etc so i think definitely like it can be a very helpful thing if you genuinely have low testosterone in your experience and the thing is as well as like this varies so much from person to person where like what is like for one person, like, Hey, we might just be at a little bit of normal, but like, okay, I feel terrible. I never have any libido anymore. I never have any motivation anymore. Um, I'm really, really struggling to build muscle or recover. Whereas another person on that, on like at the same place, like their testosterone is in the same place might feel perfectly fine. Right. So it does vary some by individual as well, but generally again, like, if you're just like, in the middle to low end of normal range and like are hoping to like get on TRT, just to get jacked. It's probably not going to be that helpful in that regard.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I don't know much about TRT either, but I, I agree with you. I think it's one of those things where you need to first look at like lifestyle interventions and things like that. Like that needs to come first before you just like, Oh, I need, I need to get on TRT because, I think those things really do play a big role. I actually just had, uh, Sal from mind pump on, um, a couple Mm -hmm. weeks ago and and he actually started taking TRT and I I thought it was interesting because I mean, you know, Sal, you know, he's very into his health Mm -hmm. and fitness and things like that, but I guess his testosterone was just very low. And, um, you know, he's obviously one of those guys that probably it, it works for because he has all those things in place and his just naturally genetically is low. And when he started taking it, you know, he did see some really good, um, results like, from it. Exactly. Oh, and, yeah. and and I asked him that because when I had him on, I'm like, dude, you're freaking looking like jacked right now. What the hell is going on? And, and he recently got on TRT. So uh, now I'm saying that again, he's somebody that like is, if you listen to mind pump, you know, sounds like he, out of all three of those guys, he's probably the most into his fitness than, than any of them. And like, I'm talking like he's super into his fitness. So like, you know, don't just take it just to take it. Like you need to make sure that's you actually need it and and take care of your lifestyle interventions first. And I think, you know, a lot of guys that do want it, I I feel like that the prototypical like avatar would be somebody that's like training their ass off like seven days a week. um, And really they're just like under recovering and training, training Mm -hmm. too much and not eating enough. And that's their issue. You know, whereas, you know, if you actually focus on training, less focus on lifestyle, you'll probably see your testosterone go up and you'll probably see more benefit than just, Throwing that
0: on there on top of it. Yeah, I will say I talk about TRT most with like dudes in their early to mid twenties, and I think the thing to understand there is like because a lot of times it's like I don't feel like I'm as jacked as I should be. I was like, well, you're in your early to mid twenties, like that's too. When you when you look at natural dudes that are actually jacked, they're almost always going to be at least thirty. Have you noticed that? Yeah, yeah, like you're. You're like 35, You're but damn. <laughs> you probably didn't look super jacked until you were like 32 at least. Yeah, it was 32. Uh, uh, but I, that, that's an interesting kind of aside. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, like I think that for some people, I definitely, it's like not something that I, of course, like I'm going to prescribe to a client that's outside of my skill. Um, for some people, if you generally have like low testosterone, It could be very beneficial. If you already have like... Mm low normal, it's probably not going to help you get significantly more jacked by adding it in.
1: Um, so I was looking up, uh, I I don't know how to just, I don't know how to, um, pronounce it. I think it's Turkester stone. I don't know. Um, but stronger by science did do a podcast on it. Um, so, and and they kind of talked about it and I'm I'm on a, a Reddit forum right now. And Greg Knuckles was talking about it and basically, uh, the, I guess somebody said current position looks popular, but not enough human trials to say for sure. And Greg followed up by saying, I think that frames it as more optimistic position than the one we actually hold. Um, they only address it because of like, I guess, how many people are bringing it up. And uh, basically, they're saying that there's like zero
0: human data on it. So take that yeah. for for what it's worth. I mean, just think about though, we've both been in the fitness industry and like in the supplement and nutrition and training game for a pretty long time. Think about how many supplements you see come and go that are supposed to be like the thing, that are supposed to like basically be like steroids without being on steroids. And none of them ever actually have panned out <laughs> to be uh, anything like that. I think if it was like legit, everybody would already know what terchesterone was by this point and most of us would be taking it. Um to somebody to I agree.
1: No, I, I agree, and I'm sure the person asking this just wanted to see what our thoughts were. But again, usually things like this, I and I'm sure you're the same way. Like to me, these things have like no. They're not going to affect my clients in any way. So I really don't like put too much time into learning more about them because it's just like, uh, I don't really care. Um, But if you do want to learn a little bit more about TRT, um, I would say, you know, maybe listen to that episode that I had with Sal, I think could be helpful just to give you an idea of somebody that had taken it. Um, And then I know uh, Iron Culture had a good podcast with Ben House. So if you want to search that, Iron Culture, Ben House, um, TRT, he had a really good like overview of it. So cool. Um, I think that's it for that one. I don't think we have anything else we need to add. So this, uh, the next one is, and I think this one's going to be, unfortunately, kind of very independent, uh, dependent on the client, but longest you would recommend a client with a mesocycle, like basically bulking or cutting, does it matter? Or, or is it based on markers like biofeedback? And so like, what would be the high and, and low end mark here? So maybe if we want to take this from like a building, uh, point of view, and then a cutting point of view, maybe.
0: On that. So basically how long would you run a mesocycle training?
1: Training, I, I think, but I think he meant. I guess let's take it from, yes, first let's go training and then think more of the uh, nutrition, like
0: how you would hear guys, like how long you would have somebody in the nutrition phase. Hmm. Yeah. It's going to depend a lot on the client yeah. and what we're seeing, of course, with training. I mean, as long as you're making good progress, there's really no upper limit for how long we can run a mesocycle, right? Like you could run the same shit for years and years if you wanted to. Um, and the reality is, like, I think it's easy to make hypertrophy training a little bit overcomplicated. Like, essentially, most of hypertrophy training is basically doing like finding fifteen ish twenty movements that work very well for you. That you can do a good pump, get a good disruption from repeating them and progressing them for a very long period of time, right? And typically like the more we're like trying to quote unquote mix things up, it's actually gonna be a little bit more detrimental for, for hypertrophy because we're spending like three, four weeks just making neural gains versus actually making muscular gains. Um that said in application, I would say like fuck, this is hard to actually put an upper limit of a number on. So what I'll say is most of my clients are gonna run a mesocycle for five to six weeks from there where i'm i'm reassessing like okay how is your progress across each individual movement right like how is our progress in our numbers is there any joint pain or like any issues ex- discomfort associated with this specific movement are you still getting a good pump a good disruption from this movement or has that deteriorated a little bit now also understand that a lot of this is going to be impacted by where you're at nutritionally um but then basically from there, it's not like it's, okay, new mesocycle and everything's completely different. Typically what we'll see is like, hey, I'm feeling pretty good, but man, the hack squat has really just been rough on my knees, this mesocycle, right? And we've seen throughout the mesocycle, like, hey, form videos, these look on point. There's not anything else we need to adjust there from a tech, like an execution perspective. Okay. Like over time, throughout the hypertrophy training as well, we will like it when you repeat movement patterns over and over and over we will start to get like a little bit of joint pain. Like you hear people call them niggles. Uh, like they say niggles. niggles. I think Steve, I think Steve Halls, who always says that I niggles. think. Uh, weird word. Anyways. uh, And like, that's probably a good time to settle movement out, right? Or same thing, like when we're starting to see it stall out. But typically, so like when we're doing in a new cycle, it's not always like, okay, and this looks completely different. Typically it's like, hey, maybe there's, two to four movements here that are different based on what we just talked about and everything else is essentially the same. And maybe we are going, maybe we're altering the rep ranges slightly. Maybe we're doing like some type of linear periodization where maybe like rep ranges are slightly lower or like maybe we're introducing like length into short supersets, for example, but it won't look dramatically different from one muscle cycle of next. And it doesn't need to. A lot of that as well is just like, also talking to the client about sometimes people will just get bored. Right. And it's engaging to make these slight variations, but especially the compound movements, we don't want to like have a massive shift in the actual movement pattern, because like once you've actually learned how to do a movement pattern, which does take a couple of weeks, then that's when it actually becomes more effective for building muscle. Um, So I typically will like reevaluate those things every four to six weeks with clients. But again, what I would say is you can probably follow the same program for, and this is also going to depend on your training age, but you could follow the same program for like a year, two years, and realistically probably see pretty good progress on it. It's just for most people, you might get bored by that point. Or again, like there might be like, man, this movement doesn't feel as good. Hey, we probably plug in a more effective movement here. Um, We move clients through different, depending on the client, some clients we move through different stimuli as well. Like I know, you know, like our hypertrophy phases, metabolic phases, neural phases. Um, Even then though, like I'll keep somebody chasing hypertrophy for a pretty long period of time. It only is like, if we see like, Hey, your conditioning really seems to be a weak point here. Like every time we train legs, we're not like smoking your quads. It's just the fact that you feel so nauseous. That's why you're stopping your sets of hack squat. Okay. We probably need to improve conditioning so that we can actually be more productive within the hypertrophy HP training. So like that'd be one time to like um, maybe we need to actually transition away and like take on an entirely different structured meso. But I mean, past that like you could really do the same shit for a very long time. And you've seen good results.
1: Yeah. and And as, as you were kind of, uh, going, going through this, I was thinking, okay, so I, the, the question makes a little bit more sense. And I think you summed it up pretty good there, right? He, he was asking as a cycle, I was thinking he was asking like, how long you keep somebody in like a bulking or cutting phase? But mm. he, I think what he was asking was like, would that kind of change how long the potential mesocycle is? And I, and I'm sure you would agree, like maybe, but like you said, I think four to six weeks is, is good. And, and what I would say here, just to kind of go off of what you said, I think four to six weeks is great. And then like you said, you know, maybe make some small changes, but asking to like okay, if you need to make a change after three weeks, you're probably progressing maybe a little too quickly or like making too big a jump from week to week. Or if it's like you're eight weeks in and you don't need to take a deload or change mesocycles, like what
0: are you actually like doing too? You know what I mean? That's a good point. Yeah. And that's like, again, like when we talk about changing stimuli, a lot of times we literally just do that as like a way to deload. That's a little bit more fun than the way people typically deload. But like when we're looking at mesocycle, the mesocycle typically... The deload is what signifies the end of the mesocycle, right? Now, within programming, most people are going to need some type of deload. To make the best progress, most people need some type of deload. And it also depends. Like, I would say people training three days per week, I never really deload. Um, And even, like, people training uh, four days a week, I will deload a good bit more frequently. But most people will need a deload, like, every five to eight weeks, I would say. So typically the deload signifies the end of the mesocycle, cycle, but that's not to say that after that we have to completely change the program. You could deload run the same mesocycle cycle again. Right. So I think that's a border context as well.
1: So I guess for like walking and cutting, I, I think there, I would say like maybe in cutting you would maybe potentially, you probably would maybe deload a little bit sooner than you would think. Whereas like, but, but man, I don't know. Then I also think like, even for that too, even when you're like building, it's like, because you have more energy, you're able to like progress more. So because of that, you might need to deload quicker or get up, change most cycles. So do you think that would change
0: anything for you? Uh, that's a hard That's a hard question to answer because I mean, also a lot of times, like when we're in a building phase, Hey, we know, okay, you're gonna have less carbs coming in. So maybe in, in a cutting, in trim. a cutting phase, you'll have, less. Yeah, carbs in a phase. excuse me, yeah. excuse me. So maybe that is where we'll like, hey, we're going to enter a neural phase here instead, and this is going to be less like politically demanding. You're going to be able to recover from this better, or hey, maybe we are going to bias more like shortened position movements and less lengthened position overload movements. So because we know you're going to have less recovery ability. So I would say in practice, it still honestly plays out pretty similar. I think if your training pr- program was exactly the same, but, and it was just like you were changing whether you're cutting or building, you probably would need to like, deload more frequently. In a fat loss phase, than you would in a building phase, just because your recovery ability would be lower. Um, yeah, I don't. you We could you could sit here and go back and
1: forth. I'm like, well, if this and that. <laughs> so, so really, I, I I agree. I think that it's 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 again. He kind of asks is it based on markers like biofeedback, and like I definitely think for sure like those are things that you're going to take into consideration in terms of how <sighs> how often you're going to deal it because you know if somebody is like showing like they're super fatigued and like stress is high and like sleep is poor. Like you're going to probably not ramp up the volume on that particular person. Right. So uh, yeah. absolutely biofeedback is going to play a role in this. But I think, like you said, I think four, like 48 weeks, I, I would say is like a very general like timeframe there. Like, I don't think you would go any less than four weeks. I feel like if you're having to go less than four weeks in a mesocycle, something's going on there, like in terms of like progressions or maybe the volume too oh, much, right. I, I don't know. But I think, I think probably four to eight weeks, I think is, perfect, no matter what phase of nutrition you are, you are in or, or anything like that.
0: No, a thousand percent.
1: Um, cool, man. So we're coming into the end of time here. Let's, let's go. I kind of had like a, like a more, more fun question here. And so we'll end up one we'll with this one. So if you could be the number one draft pick or best in your sport, what would you play and position and why? I know you're, I feel like you're not as big of a sports guy as, as I am. So like this for you is probably like, I don't understand this question, but
0: I'm just curious to hear I like sports.
1: You? okay, I, I just feel like I never <laughs> really hear you talk about sports, so
0: yeah, uh, I would definitely go to the NFL. I would be a quarterback. All eyes are on you. you get the most attention. That would be my you you'd be like the face of the franchise that, that would is true be my choice. Well,
1: I while I think that I, I agree, I think that's cool, but okay, so it, for me, this would depend on it. What's more important? the actual sport or money. Cause I think if it was money, mm-hmm. I honestly would probably money and long-term health. I honestly would probably pick baseball because I think you can make the most money and you can, and your injury risk is a lot lower. Whereas like football, like you can make a lot of money, but your time frame is so short in terms of how long you can play quarterback. It does get A get insight, actually quarterback. It does get a little bit longer in terms of how long you can play, but head issues, man, you're, you might get kind of jacked up there and we know the issues with that now. If it was for love of the sport, I'm picking hockey all day, any day of the week. But the downside with hockey is they make the least amount out of yeah, all the professional nobody cares about hockey. <laughs>
0: well,
1: that's because you're from Arizona. Well, not from Arizona, but you live in Arizona, and you're from Nebraska, two places that really don't give a shit about hockey. So I can see where <laughs> hockey's hockey doesn't mean anything
0: uh, to you. That's a good point, though. As far as the baseball thing goes, I guess I didn't. <sighs> think about it from that perspective, do baseball players like get paid more per year than like,
1: they like get paid? Butler? Baseball players get paid a lot of money. Um, but here's the downside with baseball. You're playing 162 games a season. So, I mean, pretty much you're doing that every single day. Whereas like, you know, football, you, you play once a week, you play 16, 16 to 16, 18 weeks out of the year, but I feel like your injury risk is super high. So, and, and you do a lot more practice with that. But again, the injury thing though, that's, that's what I keep going back to. I think if you really just want to maximize money, honestly, I think the NBA might be where it's at because they have like (laughs) those players make a ton of money because they have like less players on the roster. Right. So because of that, because of that, because of that, they can make a lot
0: more money. So. To all our listeners trying to decide what direction you want to go, hopefully this is helpful. (laughs) I honestly think, dude, I just, I enjoy football way more than like, basketball, baseball, I think it would probably still choose football.
1: I think with anything you need to consider like, okay, like obviously in this, like either you're good at a sport or you're not, or whatever, you don't really, you can't sit here and decide what you want to do. But I feel like with really anything, you do need to decide, like, how much do you like it? Plus how much money do you need to make? Because I think if you just do something for what you like, you know, it may not necessarily pay very well. And that could, so yeah, I think you need to take all those things into consideration, you know, with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, how much you enjoy it. If you enjoy football more than baseball, then. I and mean, that's more important than how much money you're going to make or whatnot. So,
0: if I was faced with that, because like Kyler Murray, he got drafted, right? For baseball, baseball as yep. well. I think that would be it. That would actually, like, if I was actually in the situation, I have no idea which one I would choose. I will say this: if you want to be a quarterback, this is probably the best
1: position to have to be a quarterback in the NFL. Backup, backup quarterback. Because chances, you know, <laughs> because you literally do. You sit on the bench most of the time. Unless you want to be the guy. I know you said you want to be the guy. So obviously you're not, you're, not, you're not like trying, you're not trying to be
0: the guy in these examples,
1: <laughs> but Hey, you, you make a good amount of money and you just kind of sit back. There's a guy that was in the NFL. His name was Chase Daniel. He uh, played quarterback. for oh, yeah, Missouri. Yep. He played yeah. at zoo and um, he pretty much was a backup quarterback for like, I mean, a long period of time. And I'm like, dude, he's the smartest dude out there. Like he just literally just made a ton of money
0: and barely played <laughs> just riding the bench intentionally. Huh? So that is isn't that is an interesting perspective. You brought to that.
1: <laughs> so if you, like I you said, go ahead. No, go for it. I was just going to say, so if anybody out there is trying to like figure out what professional sport they want to play, you know, take these things into consideration. DM us for more
0: advice on this.
1: Yeah. Cause we know, yeah, <laughs> we, we have the experience here with that. So, um, cool, man. Appreciate you coming on today. Uh, anything you want to leave the audience with or anything like that?
0: Oh man. Um, I don't think so. You guys know where to find me. My podcast is living lean. My Instagram is at sharing bear. I appreciate you having me on dude. And you're the uh, starting quarterback for, for, uh, your coaching team.
1: <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah. All right, guys, we'll talk soon.